you have a team that is more confident and competent and autonomous and self-sufficient. You are more focused on the work that needs to be done. And in the end, you end up having more impact and working a little bit less hard. And if that sounds interesting to you, I'd like to work less hard, but make more of a difference, then you should test out the power of being more coach-like, of being curious a little bit longer. Hello, and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance. Scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm talking to Michael Bungay-Stanya. I think this is really a great episode if you're looking to have managers in your business do more coaching, if you'd like to set up a peer coaching program, if you're looking to be better at coaching yourself. Frankly, I became a business coach because when I thought about my performance as a CEO, I realized that actually I was a bit command and control. I wasn't very coach-like. And when I started, I thought I'd be a consultant because coaching seemed a bit soft. But here I am six years later and I'm a business coach and it's what I do and I love it. And Michael's book, The Coaching Habit, has been really influential. In fact, I have his seven questions. We don't go through all seven questions today, but I have his, his seven key questions printed out in front of me as a reminder. So we talk about his book, The Coaching Habit. We talk about his latest book, The Advice Trap. And we get some fantastic insight from Michael on how to be a better coach, how to be a better leader, and how to encourage coaching inside your organization. We have a great conversation. The link with Australia went up and down four or five times. Hopefully we've stitched it together in a way that you don't even notice. I really enjoyed talking to Michael. I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to it. I'm Michael Bungay-Stenia. I am the author of the best-selling coaching book of the last little while called The Coaching Habit. I have a new book called The Advice Trap. I'm the founder of a company called Box of Crowns. It's a learning and development company helping organizations shift from advice-driven to curiosity-led. Aha. So what's on your mind? Well, that is an outstandingly good question. <laughs> and... <laughs> As it happens, what's immediately on my mind, Dominic, is a little glass of bourbon that I'm drinking right now because it's <laughs> late at night in Canberra. It's been a bit of an up and down day with my family. So just to enjoy the moment, enjoy the moment with you, I'm just drinking a really nice glass of bourbon. So that's what's immediately on my mind. Maybe not what you're hoping for, but that's what's there. <laughs> No, no, that's fine. And I mean, for those people listening, cheekily, what I've done is I've used uh, one of your seven coaching questions on you. So you say best-selling coaching book. I, why did you? Why did you write that book? That's a really good question because for anybody who's listening, who's like, should I write a book? <laughs> the answer is, 
only say yes if you're a masochist because it's really hard writing books. I mean, it's just, it's mostly a miserable experience. I mean, you have an idea and you're thinking to yourself, this will be good for my profile and I'll make money and I'll become famous. But the truth is, you know, you write a first draft trying to encapsulate the idea that's in your head. And it's bitterly disappointing because your first draft is always just miserable. So you write a second draft and your second draft actually goes backwards rather than forwards. By the time you're on your fourth draft, you're kind of back to where you started, but now you're beginning to loathe yourself and loathe the idea of the book. By the time you're on your seventh draft, the book is shaping up, but you hate yourself and you're, you're absolutely certain that nobody will buy this book. And then you finally get the book out in the world. And if you're, if you're like almost every author, you sell hardly any books. And you realize that your working rate has been about a buck fifty an hour to write this book because, you know, on average, most books sell less than a thousand copies. And if you've got a book deal and you're making 10% of the cover price, so let's say maybe a dollar a book, selling a thousand copies means maybe you've made a thousand dollars for your book. And it's taken you a lifetime and it's aged you 12 years in the process. So it is a really good question, right? Why would you write a book? And I had a couple of reasons. One is I just had this idea that I couldn't let go. And I kept trying to write the book and it wasn't a very good version of it. And I kept trying to take it to the publisher who I was working with at the time. And they kept saying, Michael, we like you, but this is not a very good book. And I'm like, ah, (laughs) but I was driven by two things in the end, Dominic. One is I could see that even if nobody bought this book from a bookstore, I could use it to help grow my business. So I had a business model behind the idea of the book. Secondly, I just had this commitment. You know, the very first book I wrote was, uh, it's out of print now. It's called Get Unstuck and Get Going. And one of my all-time intellectual heroes, a guy called Peter Block, wrote the blurb for it. And he said, as part of that blurb, coaching is not a profession, it's a way of being with each other. And until Peter said that, I was like, I didn't even realize I believed that, but I just had this idea of making coaching accessible and unweird for people. And the idea I had for that book, The Coaching Habit, was this is my best go at making that actually work. So I had a kind of real why to it, a real driving kind of personal mission to go, there's a message here. And the third piece was, it just got to a point in the writing of it, and this has happened with all my books, where I've gone, you know what, it turns out that I believe in this book enough that even if nobody buys this book, it's still worth me writing it. So it just had a kind of <laughs> internal creative commitment to it that seemed to make it worthwhile. Oh, very good. Well, thank you from, from me for writing it. I mean, to start with, I didn't think I wanted to be a coach. I knew I hadn't been a very good coach when I'd been a business leader. And I looked back and thought, if only I had those skills, maybe when I got another proper job and I'd learned some coaching skills, then I might be better at it. But at the time, I didn't want to call myself a coach because it just sounded a bit soft. Yeah. And then it turns out that actually the soft stuff is really hard and that now I've had a go at this, I enjoy it more than the proper job I used to do. So it's been fantastic. And, and, and I'm just going to jump in on what you're saying about coaching being soft, because I think sometimes coaching is soft and it does nobody any favors when that happens. It becomes in a kind of, uh, you know, the very worst 
cliche of life coaching, which is, you know, it's all pastel colors and incense and I appreciate you. No, I appreciate you. And can you feel the wind beneath my wings? And there's a place for that. But if that's all it is, that's insufficient, generally speaking, I think. And when I'm asked to talk about what's my philosophy of coaching, I've got two words, and the words are fierce love. Love meaning, for me, part of what coaching is an all-in, like, I have got your back, and I believe in the best of you. That's, That's part of my job as a coach, is to go, I'm here to make you as awesome as I think you can be. But the fierceness is what cuts through the softness, which is like fierceness means I'm not going to be nice. I'm not going to kind of butter you up or lie to you. I'm going to do what I can to push you to the edge of who you can be because that's where the greatness is. Yeah, and I I think that takes – well, it it takes courage from the coach and coachee or talent. Yeah. Well, the other thing is that it also takes to have a coach – and it, for it to work, you have to be prepared to do the work. Yeah. And so the coaching, the sort of life coaching you describe, as you were describing it, I was thinking about training programs I was sent on when I was in, in my corporate career. And mostly the outcome of that training wasn't any change. It was just that the people on the training felt uh, less bad about their inadequacies. <laughs> and so I was listening to you talking about that sort of coaching, you know, I um, you know, you're okay. You're okay. Don't worry. It's okay to be however you are. There's no sense in that of, so you want to change. I'm here to help you change. Right. I think if you're thinking of coaching on either side of the equation, either being the coach or being the person being coached, I'm a huge fan of actually what Peter Block again taught me around something called social contracting, which is as well as talking about what are we working on? I mean, why are you hiring a coach? You talk about how will we work together? And in particular, you talk about how will we screw this up? (laughs) Because this relationship will go off the rails. I mean, significantly, or maybe just a kind of a a minor jolt. And it's really worth having that conversation to go, look, this is, these are my patterns about how I undermine my good intentions. What are your patterns and how will we be aware of those and manage those? So when I hire a coach for me, I'm like, oh, let me tell you about me. I am slippery. I am elusive. I am lazy. I can make it sound like you are doing a good job at coaching me, but actually I'm just making you feel good about yourself and I'm actually avoiding all the hard stuff. Like, this is what I know to be true about me. And it's annoying because I hire a coach so I can make progress. And then I find ways of colluding against the very progress that I want to make. And, you know, through lots of hard work, I've kind of got just clear about how that is for me. But it's really helpful if I'm like, okay, coach, this is what you got to look out for. And I can't hire a coach that's going to be seduced by my superficial charm and my casual self-deprecation and my sparkly, you know, oh, let me let me start teaching you stuff because I do all of that all the time to try and make people like me. So that conversation about how will we make this, how will we give this relationship the best chance to work most powerfully is a really powerful opening move in any relationship. Quite often I, I'm saying to clients, look, you know, you should be setting up sort of peer coaching 
inside the organization. And I know Box of Crayons does, you know, you, you reckon you can teach somebody to coach in 30 minutes? Well, our philosophy is if you can't coach in 10 minutes or less, you don't have time to coach. So it takes us longer than 10 minutes to teach somebody how to coach. Although not really, because, you know, I can teach you the the principles of coaching in about 45 seconds. Here they are. Your job is to stay curious a little bit longer and rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly. That's it. That's the behavior change we're up for. And as you know, because it's in the coaching habit book, and I know you've got these questions printed out because you were telling me about it before we hit record. You're like seven good questions. So it's like, okay, you're trying to stay curious a little bit longer. Use the seven questions. There we go. I've just taught you coaching. Now, it's harder to do that in theory, in practice than it is in theory. But the idea is if you can't coach in a fast way, it's really hard to find a way of building it into your everyday life because most of us are too busy. Should we tell people what the questions are? Why don't we tell them what some of the questions are? Tease them a little bit. (laughs) If we tell them everything, then we're doing all the work for them. Yeah, get that. uh, Yeah, because they need to, they need some desire to do the work. So let me ask you this. Which question of the seven do you find yourself using most often? Actually, in an attempt to stay curious and to avoid advice giving, then actually the second question. So the first one was what's on your mind and the second one is and what what else? Because the thing that's on somebody's mind often first, I find, is, is not where the problem is. It's where they think the problem is or what they think I might want to hear the problem is. And when you force them to go deeper themselves they often go on a journey of discovery and they say, I don't know why, you know, we're having this conversation because obviously I seem to have all of the answers, don't I? <laughs> um, and then often, as you say, people, people are in some sort of defensive mode. Um, and, you know, you say, what, so what's the challenge? You know, like what, you know, why are we having this conversation, right? You know, you've, you've just given me this long sort of stream of consciousness. So, and what else is the second question in the book? And you know, when I'm talking about it, I'll say this is the best coaching question in the world. So if you're listening to this conversation with Dominic and me you, and you're going to take one question away from it, it might well be and what else because it does a number of things. It comes with the awareness that the first answer is almost never their best answer and it's almost certainly not their only answer. And if you're trying to stay curious a little bit longer – if you get seduced into thinking that their first answer is the one and only answer, you've lost the game. So just anytime you ask a question, you get more bang for the buck when you go, right, what else? <laughs> what else is the answer to that question? And what else is the answer to that question? And is there anything else in the answer to that question? And you get them working and you get them going deeper and you get a real hit for whatever question that you've asked. So I love that. But let me ask you this, Dominic. Which of the questions for you feels hardest to answer? Which is kind of the, you may not use it all the time, but it feels like the the kind of a more challenging question. The the, the most challenging question for me to ask? Or or even to answer, whichever 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 feels most useful to answer. I think the, uh, if you're saying yes to this, what are you saying no to? Nice. Yeah. That's a, you know, we call that the, the strategic question in the book because it makes you look at the opportunity cost of commitment and it makes you understand what you need to sacrifice to make progress. 
you know, so much of our lives, we're like, I just want to keep saying yes to everything. And if you're listening to this and you're like, my life is overcrowded and I feel like I have too many things on my to-do list, it's because you're not that great at understanding that your yes is nothing unless it comes with a clear no as to these are the things I now need to say no to. So my yes means something. And when you understand what strategy is, at the most fundamental level, it's making a choice and having the courage to say, this is the bet I'm placing. And what you see in the people who you probably respect most as strategic leaders are people who've gone, look, I'm really clear about the choices here. I'm clear about what I'm going to say yes to. I'm clear about what I'm saying no to. And I'm willing to bet myself and I'm willing to face the consequences of those choices. Look, so I love that you've picked that question, the strategic question, but I have got a different question. For me, that's the hardest, the trickiest, the messiest, the most challenging of the seven questions. It's the foundation question, number four of the seven. And the foundation question is, what do you want? And it sounds so innocuous, <laughs> but it's so it's so confronting, or at least it can be, because even if you've got a fast answer to what do you want, if you if you stay curious and go, yeah, but what else do you want? And what do you really want? Actually, lots of the time, in my experience, people find that hard to answer. I certainly can often find it hard to answer. But it's magical, Dominic, because once you figure out what it is that you want, it just gives you firm footing for progress. Because you're like, oh, if that's what I want, you kind of op it opens up another question. It's not one of the seven, but it comes from a, a writer called Roger Martin, which is, so what needs to be true for you to get what you want? And now, now magic happens. You know, the company I founded is called Box of Crayons, and it's a learning and development company. But a year ago, I stepped away from being the CEO of that, and Shannon now runs the company. And we come back to what needs to be true as our foundational strategic question. Because once we understand the vision we have for what we want at Box of Crayons, either at a big scale or at a kind of a smaller scale, we ask what needs to be true, and it helps us figure out what we need to build to get to where we want to go. And it means we spend less time debating the destination, which can get into one of these kind of circular arguments, and much more time going, if that's our destination, what needs to be true? And if, is it even possible? Yes. It's funny because I think the the what else question and what do you want question are not only do I use them in coaching, but I also use them if I'm talking to prospective clients in a sales, in a sales capacity, you know, because we're having a conversation. So they must want, they must have a notion that they want something from me. And what I find often is, you know, the, the, what do you want? You know, they'll often, there's three things that they can say. And what you find often with salespeople is they, they say, and so, you know, what do you want? And then they just want the client to say one thing before they start showing up and throwing up on them, you know, or pitching, here's my slide deck. Right. And, and actually it's, I don't know, answers four and down that are actually the problem that they really want to solve. The first three were just almost placeholders in their mind, but not, not actually of any substance. Yeah, so, so you can get to use those three questions as a really powerful sales conversation. So what do you want? 
And what else do you want? Okay, of those, what do you really want? Right, so what's the real challenge here for you? And what else? And what else? So what's the real challenge about the thing you really want? And they're like, oh, my God, you've just blown my mind by having this conversation. So you've already added value because you've facilitated them into an insight as to what's really going on there. And then here's what's liberating. As a salesperson, you're like, I know whether I want to sell to you or not. Because if you've gone, I, here's what I really want about my real challenge. And I'm like, I don't actually have a solution for that. Then I'm like, you know what? I don't have the answer, but I know a mate who does. Let me introduce you to a trusted colleague. But when you have this next challenge, I can help you with that. And it's a longer term game. And I know with sales, there's so much pressure to kind of, you know, hit the quarter numbers or hit the annual numbers. But it means that the sales you're making are the ones that really matter. And the relationships you're building are the ones that where you become the trusted advisor. Absolutely. Well, and also, I think there was a great thing in Harvard Business Review a couple of years ago, which said only only 20%, confounding the myth, only 20% of high-performing salespeople were money-motivated. The others were actually motivated by a whole sweep of other things. Oh, I didn't see that, but that's really fascinating, isn't it? And I often say to clients, salespeople are people too, and that you shouldn't jump to the conclusion about their motivation because actually it probably compels you to hire the wrong people. But Michael, going back to building coaching as a, a thing that everybody does, can everybody be a coach? Here's a way of thinking about it. If you accept my definition of coaching or actually being more coach-like as can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? I would then ask you, what do you think people could practice and learn how to stay curious a little bit longer? And I'm going to say, yeah, actually, I reckon most people could stay curious a little bit longer because it means asking one more question. Now, it's a very different question to say, can everybody be a coach? And I'm like, probably not. But that's all right. We don't even want everybody to be a coach. Actually, that would be terrible because if everybody's a coach, we're now in a, some sort of multi-level marketing scheme of misery. That's not what we want at all. So, look, there are, there are already a lot of coaches in this world. Some are really great. Some are pretty mediocre. I think there's a, a great question to ask yourself, which is, am I up for the profession of being a coach? Because what that means is not only I know how to coach people well, but I have a target audience, I know how to market, I know how to sell, I know how to build a business around that. And I think that's a selected group of people who will find happiness and financial success in being a coach. But in terms of can everybody be more coach-like, oh, I'm like everybody. Everybody can be more coach-like because that is not a profession. It is a way of being with each other. It's a way of saying, look, my commitment is my behavior change, which is I understand the power of staying curious a little bit longer. So do you accept the premise that managers, that, that the skill that managers have or good managers is the ability to coach their people? Well, you know, this is I, we get into confirmation bias here. I build a career on talking about the power of coaching. So when you go, so Michael, what are you talking about the power of coaching? I'm like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it's awesome. Actually, now you mentioned it. Well, I, I, I guess what I was trying to get to was how do you spot potential for coaching, or do you just open it up and see who swallows it all up? I think one of the one of the things you need to make the argument for 
if you're in an organization and you say to your people, we want you to be more coach-like, you have to make the case for why that change of behavior is worth it. Because it is not a casual thing to stay curious a little bit longer and rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly. I mean, it's it trips off very nicely off my tongue, even after a glass of bourbon. But it's hard because we have been wired and trained for years, like tens of years, to go, the way I add value is to have the answer. And the way I stay in control is to have the answer. And the way I maintain my status is to have the answer. So to say to somebody, you know what, what if you give up a little bit of control? What if you give up a little bit of status? What if you give up the need to be the person who's the smartest person in the room? Is it worth it? And you have to make the case about how this is worth it for them. And there's actually a a good body of research that says, look, if you can manage curiosity, you push responsibility and accountability to the appropriate place in your team. So you are not overwhelmed and overburdened by taking on too much responsibility. The right people own the right amount of responsibility. You are more likely to be focused on trying to fix the the most important things. So that busyness and that overwhelm and that pointlessness that can sometimes flood your organizational career, which is like, I'm really busy, but why am I doing this? This feels like an utter waste of time. <laughs> it's just, how is this contributing to anything of value? Curiosity will help you be more focused about what's the real things that we need to solve. And I think that in the end, if you are more coach-like as a leader, you have a team that is more confident and competent and autonomous and self-sufficient. You are more focused on the work that needs to be done. And in the end, you end up having more impact and working a little bit less hard. And if that sounds interesting to you, I'd like to work less hard, but make more of a difference, then you should test out the power of being more coach-like, of being curious a little bit longer. And when you say it, it sounds as though adding a bit of curiosity would be useful. But I find most of the time, that actually people don't ask questions that they don't already know the answer to. So there is, there's almost zero curiosity at all in the sort of pretend questions they're answer, they're asking, you know. And I was I was chatting to David Marquet, the author of Turn the Ship Around, and he said, you know, you, you mentioned there about the status, you know, and he said from his perspective it was all about his status, and he knew all the answers. And he only asked questions to test whether the other people that knew the answers to prove that he was smarter than them. And so, you know, that's... Oh, totally. It's like, no, no, you, you didn't understand my last question. Let me ask it again. And let's see if you get the answer that I'm looking for again. I mean, it's that's such a toxic relationship when it comes down to it. And yet people get promoted to manager because of their domain expertise. And, and it's built into the system of organizational hierarchy that you know coaching isn't coaching isn't on the syllabus right i mean the the glimmer of hope that i want to hold out is that it's really possible i mean one of the most exciting clients for us to work with at box of crayons is microsoft and lots of people are aware of the cultural change that's happening in microsoft that shift from that classic hard driving where the smartest people around here to under the new CEO or the newish CEO, Satya Nadella, he's going, we're shifting from a culture of know-it-all to learn-it-all. And 
at the heart of this is picking up this idea of the growth mindset. And it's one thing to kind of go, look, we believe in the growth mindset. It's another question altogether to operationalize it. And, you know, Microsoft is not a small company. It's the second most valuable company in the world, I think, at the moment. And they're using coaching. They're actually using some of the kind of the box of crayons tools to help bring this culture of being more coach-like across their organization. And one of the most thrilling things that I've done as part of that transformation is I worked with the head of sales for Microsoft. So, you know, head of an enormous organization. And he's old school Microsoft. He's been there 25 years. So he grew up under the old regime of who has time for this curiosity stuff. It's command, it's control, it's tell them what to do, it's drive them hard. And what's fantastic is watching that senior level commitment to say, we've seen the research, we've seen the data, we see the importance of how culture beats strategy, you know, each strategy for breakfast. If we don't shift the culture, we will lose. So you've got even the most senior people, the people who are as invested as you can get in the old ways of, of behaving, thoroughly committed to going, I'm up for it. I'm going to learn how to shift my behavior. I'm going to learn how to stay curious. And I'm going to make that cultural change happen across hundreds of thousands of people in Microsoft. And a commitment to do the hard work. Yeah. Fantastic. And to give up status and give up control and reimagine what it means to be a leader. Michael, just talking about Microsoft there, it seems to me that we've we've sort of strayed from, you know, talking about the coaching habit and into your your most recent book around not giving advice. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing wrong with advice. I mean, it's worth saying right at the start that advice is just a key part of how people learn, how we progress, how civilization continues to evolve. But after I wrote The Coaching Habit and it sold, you know, 800,000 copies and became this amazing bestseller and it was thrilling, I got lots of people writing to me going, I've started using your questions. It's fantastic. It's really shifting the way that I coach. And of course, that's fantastic to hear. But I was certain that there were people who weren't writing to me going, you know what, I read the book and you're like, you're a vaguely amusing person some of the time. And I even like the questions, but I'm not doing anything different as a result of reading the book. Now, part of that's just, you know, it's a book and it's kind of miraculous that anybody's read a book and it's changed their behavior. But I did start wrestling with the idea. So why is it so hard to stay curious a little bit longer? And you're quite right that in the advice trap, the real essence is how do you shift the behavior when it's not an easy shift for lots of people? For some people, it is. For some people, they're like, I was just waiting for this toolkit to arrive, and now I have the seven questions, I'm away, and I'm launched, and it's going very well. Other people are like, there's deeper, there are heavier anchors that are keeping me stuck in this old way of behaving. So the advice trap is this deeper dive into behavior change. And it centers around this idea of your advice monster. Your advice monster is the metaphor of the old ways of behaving. Every time you think, maybe I should ask a question, your advice monster looms up out of the dark and goes, no, 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 don't ask them a question. Just leap in and give them advice. And in the book, we talk about these three different personas the advice monster has. There's tell it, there's save it, and there's control it. So Tellert has gone, look, the way you add value is to have the answer. 
And if you don't have the answer, you fail. And if you fail, they fail. The only way you have the, the only way you really add value in your role is to know all the answers to all the problems, which of course, just to be clear, is impossible. But you've got that drive, that that anxiety. I've got to have the answer. The second advice monster is save it. So save it's gone, hey, you're responsible for making sure that nobody ever struggles or stumbles or finds it hard or doesn't have the answer. You've got to keep everybody safe all the time. You've got to rescue everybody. And of course, just like having all the answers, keeping everybody safe all the time is impossible. But we've lots of us have that kind of motivator, which is like, no, that's my job. That's how I add value. And then the third advice monster is the slipperiest of the three, and it's control it. And control it's gone, look, the way you add value, the way you win is to never give up control. Don't take your hands off the steering wheel. Don't let anybody else lean in or take over control. Manage the whole process from start, the middle, to the finish. Because if you give up control, even for a moment, chaos will arrive. We will all fail. So we've got these three drivers, these kind of three ego states, know it all, save it all, control it all. And they're the drivers that keep us defaulting to giving advice, having the answer, providing the solution, even though intellectually lots of us get the power of staying curious a little bit longer. And so that, so that was the, that, that's the genesis. So if, if the first book doesn't change you, then the second book is the dig in more assuming you have desire, right? I mean, without the desire, you're not going to pick up the first book probably anyway. Oh yeah. Because, you know, there's a bell curve here and, you know, at one end of the bell curve are people who think I am a God and they're like, this is what we were looking for. You're amazing, Michael. And of course I hang out with those people as often as I can because I have a fragile male ego and I need all the support I can get. But then at the other end of the bell curve are a whole bunch of people going, Michael, you're, you're a lunatic. And this stuff is ridiculous and I don't believe in it and I'm never going to buy into it. And that's fine because there's no point in trying to convince them otherwise. But it's the people in the middle that I really want to help. The people who go, you know, I kind of believe that there might be something in curiosity, but I find it really hard to shift my patterns of behavior. Those are the people I'm really striving to help. So I, I, think, I think if I take what you've just said and I link it back to your earlier rationale statement, you know, saying working too hard, not having enough impact, you know, that, that sums up probably the conversation I have with most MDs, CEOs, or business leaders. And they're trying to find time to be more strategic, but they're caught in this, the learned behavior pattern throughout their whole organization is that everybody turns to the senior person on the org chart and gets them to make the decision or gets them to tell them how it should be. But the behavior has to start at the top and then it'll cascade down. So I think people will find this, our discussion really useful and enlightening and go out and if they haven't already, go out and buy the book. Michael, looking back, what is it you now know that you wish you'd known earlier? Well, I'm tempted to quote Oscar Wilde and say youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> I'm, here in, I'm here in Australia at the moment hanging out with my nieces and nephews who are all teenagers and I'm like, oh, being a teenager is so, I mean, it's confusing, but it's also awesome. You're so young and fit and smart, and there's so much potential ahead of you. But a serious answer, what do I wish I'd known? 
that one of the most powerful things you can do if you are born into privilege. And, you know, I, I get got dealt all the cards. Like I'm a straight, white, tall, overeducated, stunningly good-looking man, which is why this is an audio recording, just to be clear. And, like, I realize now that one of the most powerful things that I do is learn how to give up power, to step aside from control. And coaching is actually a really cunning leadership skill because it inverts traditional leadership. It is about giving up control and inviting others in to take control, to assume status, to take responsibility. And I wish I'd known that earlier because I would have strove after success and status in a different way. Huh. Okay. What would you have done differently then? How would you have garnered status and success? Well, I'm not totally sure because it's, it's complex. But, you know, as a younger person, I was chasing the trophies, chasing the rewards. And I wouldn't say that I was ruthless, but I would say that there's a way that I was like, but I would like to win this nonetheless. And actually, in many ways, I'd already won. So it's like, what am, what am I still fighting for? What am I competing for? And how do I define victory as who around me wins rather than how do I win? Yes, which sounds very much, if you take a, um, I don't know, sports analogy, it sounds like the coach and not the players. Well, maybe it sounds like the team, not the individual which is like, you know what, there's no point in me being the star striker on the team if the team doesn't win the championship. So how do I enable the team to win the championship? Aha. Uh -huh. Okay, good. And Michael, so people should pick up the books, your books that we've talked about along Coaching Habit and The Advice Trap. Immediately. Immediately. At least three <laughs> copies of each book. <laughs> send, them, <laughs> send them out to people for Christmas. What uh, what books have you read along the way that have had an impact on you that you think other people should probably pick up? Well, look, I'm a big reader. I read a lot. I have a master's degree in literature, so I read fiction. My wife is a, a YA young adult librarian, so I read YA, I read science, I read business and kind of management books, of course. So I'll mention three books that, that have been in my mind recently that I think have been powerful. Um, because honestly, there's a lot of terrible books out there that aren't worth reading. But if you find the good ones, you want to hold on to them. So number one, Kevin Kelly, his book is called The Inevitable. And here's the subtitle, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. Kevin Kelly really is a brilliant futurist. And he's got a capacity of, of seeing the big picture and going, look, if this is an actual drive, if this is a trend, here are the implications. And I don't fully understand what all the things he's pointing to actually mean in terms of how society shifts and how business shifts. But I'm just rereading this book to go, I need to be thinking about that. Because, you know, in five years time, the way we do work will be different because of the trends Kevin Kelly's talking about. So that's number one. Second one is a book by a indigenous Aboriginal man. His name is Tyson Yunkaporta, and the book is called Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. And this isn't a book that says, oh, you know what, primitive 
Aboriginal tribes are awesome and we should learn how to buy didgeridoos and hang them in our office wall. He is a very funny, very sophisticated thinker who understands complexity, who understands system thinking, who understands the inherent contradictions in our kind of classic Western ways of working. And his thinking is powerful and profound and it offers up a challenge to say, if our role is to be custodian of this place, what does that tell you in terms of how you're behaving and how you're working right now? So it's funny. He's a really he's got a wicked sense of humor, but it's also provocative and challenging. And you know, he is eloquent in Western thinking and indigenous thinking, and it's it's a really amazing book. And then the the third book I'm going to recommend is by David Epstein. It's called Range. How Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And honestly, all of these books are connected around this whole piece around how are you seeing the bigger picture? How are you seeing differently beyond your own niche? But Epstein is saying, you know, our society is one that tends to fetishize people who have a deep specialization. But actually, the people who have the capacity to thrive in the future, a generalist, because they have a way of making connections and thinking metaphorically and being able to see and have knowledge of different domains that allow them to be flexible and adaptable to our complex world. Michael, that's magic. I, one of the joys for me of doing the podcast is, is I never have to go looking for books because people continually suggest the gems, the gems that are hidden out there in plain sight. And so I've read range, but the other two I haven't read. So I can immediately put them on my holiday reading list for next week. Fantastic. Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. It's been great fun. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for surfing the kind of technical hiccups we've been having along the way. The listener won't even know they've been happening, but <laughs> you and I have both been going, let's just, I've just got to crank start my computer again. So here we go. But thanks for that. All right. Brilliant. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments and, and perhaps even recommend a guest a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.